Stay hungry, stay foolish. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Mark Twain. For the past few years, today's guest has been talking to people about what scares them and helping them to work through their fears. His book brings together what he has found. Maybe it is about time that we looked at fear differently and asked why is it such a big problem for us. Hacking fear involves looking at fear from another angle. Fear hacking is a way of turning our experience from a monster story into a love story. We welcome author of Fear Hack, Hilary Gallo. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's great to have you on the show, Hilary. I'm fascinated by how our brains create our realities, and therefore the stories we tell ourselves become extremely important in our worldview. Yeah, our imagination has this capacity to just take over, and we have these structural challenges in that we have stories that are given to us as structurally we grow up with. It's a gift as a human to have a fertile imagination but the danger is the negative side of that imagination can give rise to this incredible storytelling about stuff that's not actually there. There's no person downstairs in the house, just as there isn't the detail of the fear that might emerge in our lives, but it doesn't stop it from seeming really real. And you say in the book that fear is a story that we tell ourselves, but fear and danger are not the same thing. It's a really important distinction. I mean, overall, I don't think we interrogate this fear thing enough. The difference between danger and fear, if somebody's coming towards you with a knife in the street, you've got to take that seriously. That's clear, present, actual danger. But fear, when we talk about fear, it's generally something that exists in the mind. It's not something that exists in the actual moment. What most people are talking about, and when I workshop this with a fear wall, I get people to put stuff up on the wall, pretty much all the time, it's something that exists in the future and is an expectation rather than an actuality. And there's a huge difference between the two. It's funny that one because I thought about that when I was reading the book and I thought about my own experiences as you do. And one of the ones was, I remember when I was a professional rugby player, we used to do fitness tests quite often. And the way the guys spoke about the fitness test was worse than the actual fitness test. I used to always kind of go, why do you keep thinking about it and talking about it? There's nothing you can do except prepare for it. And actually the story, it was that idea of the story you were telling yourself was actually worse than the actual event itself. It's never what we think it is. If you, you know that when we go on holiday or something and we have an expectation about what it's going to be like and we look back and we know it's never like we thought it would be always different whatever it is so why do we think about it ahead so much there's a point at which is it might be helpful but it's got to be limited here you say we develop strategies early in our lives to deal with our fears but these strategies become habits that form our worldview and the way we deal with fear throughout the rest of our lives this is a particular part of the book i'd call it what scares us makes us but it's recognized and it's not just me that's saying this, this is a wider phenomenon, that we react to situations early in our lives. So, for example, if I was a victim of bullying early in my life at school, and one of my ways of digging myself out of that was becoming smart. I had to be smart to avoid getting literally chased out of the classroom 
I had strategies that were based on being the smartest person in the room. So I needed to be smart and an expert. That strategy served me really well at that time, and it pushed me forward in my career, got me to a certain point. But actually, at a certain point, that strategy was really unhelpful for me. Because if you always need to be the smartest person in the room, you're kind of not listening. And so weirdly, these strategies that serve us, they become problematic. And that's why we have these points in our later lives where most of us get stuck and we have to question the strategies. And I love this idea of embracing fear. The people who succeed in life are the people who go after it and understand that it's actually part of the process. And I pulled a quote that I love from David Bowie, and it goes like this. If you feel safe in an area you're working in, you're not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. And when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. I love that quote because that means embracing fear and moving towards it because you reframe it that way you realize it's actually part of the process of growth if you look at any natural growth you look at a plant or a tree or something it's growing into fresh space so it has no idea of what that fresh space is going to be like and we have this thing like we call it imposter syndrome i think that's a really dangerous naming convent you know to give something we should call it growing pains because the reality of what we feel when we're in this space where we feel uncertain when someone's going to come and tap us on the shoulder and say, you're an imposter. Well, that's actually the feeling that we should have because we're in a space of growth, a space that's fresh to us, that's new, that's challenging. And actually, if we just looked upon it as a growing pain or a growing story and said, look, if I don't have this feeling, I'm not actually challenging myself, I'm not actually growing, then we'd worry about the absence of that feeling and not the presence of it. That would be more helpful and, when you think about it, more logical. And this should be taught to kids. These frameworks, these mental models get embedded in our minds at a very young age. And it's that the problem. It's in that early age where we're so susceptible to the information we receive and we form ways of dealing with the world. And it's then that if it was intercepted, we could have totally radically different lives. I mean, you've got to contrast the process a child would go through to learn to walk. It's fully accepted that one needs to fall over and be left. And parents will allow children to do that because they're very young and it's accepted that's the process. And yet you walk down to the average park um, and watch parents and children. You know, how many children are being allowed to fall over and to fail and to crash themselves? to learn by failing. At a certain age, we start to instill our own fears about all the things that exist in the world. We even do it from parent to child. It's not even that we don't allow the children. We actually tell the children what they should be scared of. And yeah, I think that's really quite unhelpful and dangerous. Let's go back to the book here and acknowledge some of the great stories you tell. And there's a great one you tell about Gareth Morgan in the late 19th century. I love this as a way to frame how our emotions are formed. He was a, an inventor in those early days in Cleveland, I think. He had a, a motor car and he observed that traffic lights didn't work because they were just go for green and red for stop. And he noticed at junctions you would have accidents on a regular basis because people couldn't cope with the 
singular nature of either one or the other. So what he did was invent the amber stage, the middle stage, the unsure stage of traffic light. So we now have the three phasing of the traffic light. And I like this model because my view is that our nervous system has this same staged way of being that we are either on red, which is kind of like freeze, freeze up literally like an ancient lizard or a bird that just freezes to avoid the predator. Amber, which is fight, flight. So we're either engaging in fighting the predator or we're running away to get out of the place. Or we have this social space. We have this ability to engage this positive space of green, which is safe engagement. And it's a different phase of the traffic light of our nervous system than the fight. So we get confused a lot of the time because I think we spend far more of a time of our lives than we realize in this kind of unsure amber fight flight zone. And really it's a step change is the sort of point of the traffic light to get ourselves into the green safe to engage space. And as you point out, Aidan, it's actually quite hard to convince the body, the mind and the nervous system to engage, to go towards something. It's said we walk towards something, but we run away. And it's something like a 10 to 1 ratio of likelihood of safe engagement moving towards and getting away. And this is something Paul Ekman uh, identified in the basic emotions. There's something like five or six basic emotions that he identified um, that take us away, like fear and disgust and anger. But there's only one happiness that takes us towards. It's logical, actually, in the primitive systems, because if we get killed, we eat something we shouldn't or a predator catches us, um, we're dead. Whereas if we miss out on the food or the bit of love, we can get by. So it's natural that our bodies are predisposed to the negative. There's a negative heuristic, there's a loss heuristic. Everything is about moving away and, and loss. And we're very little focused on the gain. And that's a challenge when we come to look at fear. We're just too ready to engage with the scary stuff and not willing enough to, to go towards things. Absolutely. And I loved the idea that our green zones, as you mentioned here in the red, amber and green, the green zones themselves can be those creative moments in showers or going for a walk. And if we frame them that way, we'll actually engage more of them. Yeah, I mean, my overall contention is that we care a lot about the objective or the thing we want to go towards the you know if we we've got this thing we're a presentation we're going to do we focus a lot on the content and the slides and the thing what we don't tend to do is we focus on our state our nervous system how we are and actually that's crucial to our performance you know if we're in a good state if we're relaxed our memory is better our brain is more focused, we'll remember more stuff, we'll focus on the things we meant to say. It's fundamentally going to change how we present. And yet we spend very little time understanding how we calm ourselves. You know, How do we get ourselves in that state and stay there when we're in front of a room? Coming off the book here for a second, because you run Fear Hack workshops, this obviously is one that comes up a lot because public speaking is one of the major fears that we have in life. How do you deal with that as a workshop, a fear hack workshop? The first thing, as I said, is to to think about our nervous system, techniques for calming ourselves, 
people will stand up in front of the room and stop breathing, literally. So there's a whole load of sensory things we can do, like good, strong out-breath. Just focus on the breathing through the few minutes before you're, you're going to present and just get yourself calm. A lot of us will clam up if we don't get any audience interaction because there's a relational element to speaking, which we don't always acknowledge. So you know, it's a good idea for a lot of us to start with asking the room a question, get people engaged, have a bit of some form of dialogue, because that will usually comfort. There's a bit of uncertainty in the interaction. We don't know what's quite going to happen, but for most of us, it'll calm us because we're getting some feedback. But it's, it's little techniques like that uh, to make us more present. And you're trying to get us going towards the audience. You know, if we look at the audience through the lens of this is a bunch of lions and tigers who are going to jump on me, they're the predator, they're my predator, then our presentation is not going to be as fluid. But if, if we can reach out with joy and love and appreciation, if we've reframed our thinking about our audience in that way, our performance will change accordingly. I love the reference you make in the book to the fact that in the face of any adversity, we focus on the most obvious perpetrator. And here you say, punch and duty only works if there's a duty. So we try to climb the ladder and get higher, higher up the system to avoid the blows where possible. But oftentimes it's the system itself that's broken. Punch and duty, I think, is really interesting because we tend to focus on punch, but we forget that there is two characters in this game. There's the perpetrator and there's the victim. So that leads you to realize this is not just a question of stopping punch from beating up Judy. It's a question of recognizing that there's a, there's a perpetrator and a victim. So it, it needs both. And what happens often if, if someone's attacked, say I'm bullied in childhood, the easiest thing for me to do is to aspire to become the bully myself. So most people who do become bullies in life, they started off being the victims. And even when they are bullying, they think of themselves as still being the victim. And what we do in pointing the finger at the character punch or whatever else is we look at the character. We look at the Weinstein. We don't look at the systemic problem and we perpetuate the systemic issue that there is there. But at the same time, we do something about the particular character. And that doesn't solve the issue as a whole. And I think that's a real challenge we have as society because we need to look at the question much more widely as a power question. Yeah, and oftentimes you see this in business as well. I'm sure you see it in your workshops. I run workshops as well. And one of the things I talk about is that when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself. And that's the place to start. You've got to look at what am I doing to facilitate such behaviors? Perhaps there's undesired behaviors. Perhaps your business is challenged. What am I doing as a leader to facilitate these or to make it happen? And what am I not doing, more importantly, instead of trying to take out some hero or some symbolic symbol of change rather than make an absolute systemic change across my organization? Yeah, absolutely right. Those three fingers pointing back at you. I mean, question I'll often ask people is what makes you angry? Because I find that what makes them angry in the world outside is a clue to something in themselves. Let's face it, if we were completely Zen, nothing would anger us, nothing would annoy us, nothing would get to us. It gets to us because it's a reflection of something in ourselves. 
And that's an amazing truth to realize if you can tap into it. Going back to the Punch and Judy, you say there has to be both in order for this system to work. And you call this belief in hierarchy or predation our monkey mindset. And it's still a mindset that governs us to this day. We have a system, we have a strategy as human beings that I think we inherited from the lions and tigers of predation. So our strategy is we were once preyed upon by them in order to save ourselves from our fate as a victim of the predator. What we've done is climb the system and become the top predator. But what we as mankind haven't done and we, I think we need to do now is realize that that was a strategy that served us very well to get us to the state we're in now. But it's not a strategy that's serving us very well at the moment, because if we always have to climb the hierarchy and there always has to be a hierarchy, then all of us always are trying to be the top dog or the top lion. And there's only space for so many top dogs. You know, we're finding out at the moment, you know, you've got this 1% who sit at the top of society. It's becoming a problem because there's only space for so many lions and the rest of us are becoming more and more victims. I don't think mankind can continue for too much longer with that underlying strategy of hierarchy and predation. I also think that fear is baked into that strategy. So if you have a system which is based fundamentally on hierarchy and predation, you will always have fear of not being at the top of that hierarchy and the dangers that uh, come thereby. This idea of evolution and getting outside ourselves to actually that whole idea of metacognition, catching ourselves, catching our behaviors when they're not serving us. But there's a certain story you tell, and I absolutely love this one, and I'm going to write about this one in this week's blog. It's when you talk about our growth and the shell of the old self grows tighter and tighter and becomes harder and harder to shed. And we need to behave like the crustacean does and shed that shell because it's no longer serving us. There's a battle here, I think, between the soul and the ego. The model is that as we grow, and we are growing, the brain is plastic. It can change and it evolves. As we grow, the structure, the narrative structure that we build for ourselves, it might be the career, it might be the person we think we are, we get to a point if we're truly growing where that structure will start to itch and start to hurt. And we might have an incident in our lives that calls that out to us if we don't notice it. Slowly, that tightness of the shell will creep up on us. And our challenge then is to, as you say, shed the shell. And unquestionably, we are vulnerable for some period, like the crustacean. Once we crawl out of the, the hard shell and discard it, you know, we might want to look after ourselves for a little while, you know, shelter ourselves under a rock or something, literally, away from the angry predators so that we can grow our systems and strategies in that new world. Unless we develop the capacity to shed those old ways of being and those old shells in that sort of metaphorical model, we're going to be restricted in our growth by our old narrative. So a bit of vulnerability from time to time is absolutely essential. Yeah, and I love this idea of getting rid of that old shell, that old way of being, particularly that period of vulnerability, because 
it's not only we're vulnerable to the naysayers, we're also vulnerable to those closest to us because often those close to us are the ones who try to hold us back and they don't do it for bad reasons. I think this is an important distinction to make. Our friends sometimes are the people who least want us to change and it's not for any, as you say, any bad reason, but just there's a comfort, like we've talked about the comfort in staying as we are ego wants us to stay as we are today because that's the safest place to be that's just like our friends in life they want us to stay the same because similarly they're not stressed or challenged themselves and sometimes if we genuinely want to grow we have to look outside our closest circle of friends at the people who will actively support that change in us who can see the new possibility of us and can communicate with our the soul of who we are, you know, the inner bit of us that's itching to get out, rather than the sort of shell of us that limits us. Um, because the point in the fear work is fear is something that exists in the ego, is something that exists in the shell because it doesn't want us to change. Whereas the soul of us is the bit that wants to make fear our friend, the soul of us that knows where we truly want to go and what our passions are is the thing that wants to talk to fear that is made curious by beauty in the world and by experience and curiosity about the wider possibility so we have to somehow split or see that we are not just one thing with one strategy but rather these two parts of ego and soul that have slightly different agendas the shell for me represented not just our world what i mean there is your ecosystem around you and maybe where you live and maybe the habits that you have and maybe those friends as you say and i mean that genuinely those friends who do mean you well but they don't want you to change because it reflects on them but you need to shed, shed that as well and that's the really really difficult thing because they will hold you back so there's another analogy here and you talk about the analogy of the beaver, the dam, and the monkey all working in unison. I love this. I talk quite a lot about respecting the fact that there are a number of these parts of us, and they're kind of often in dialogue or conflict. So the monkey I identified as very much the bit of us that wants us to climb the hierarchy, you know, wants to climb the tree in order to be able to throw things at others. The problem with the monkey is it's quite abusive. It's quite dominant. It's quite angry. What it does is team up with this character I call the beaver that wants to make this web of narrative and story to justify those actions. So, you know, we've just climbed this tree in order to throw stuff at this other person because, and that's good for us. You know, the strongest thing is to have this monkey strategy that pushes us upwards, but also have a, an emerging narrative structure by the beaver that tells us why that's such an important and necessary thing. You know, Hitler wouldn't have been as strong if he didn't have Goebbels, I think he was, his head of PR, who sat alongside him crafting the stories that kept the whole thing going. And that's what it depends on. I called it the beaver because I felt that it's like a big dam of sticks. Whereas as humans, we should be in flow like the river. What the beaver's actually doing is building this structure that blocks the flow. And that's not necessarily helpful if you want to be in the flow as a human. You know, you want to be growing, developing, fluid, all those things. 
with the beavers stopping you. And I thought it'd be interesting to share your own story here because you framed your life stages in a certain way, Hilary, and I believe this is something we can all relate to. I think the first seven years are pretty powerful for experiences. We're just getting out. Uh, we have experiences in the family, forming our first key relationships with our parents. And there's often stuff that happens in those early stages that builds a strategy towards life. Then I think seven to 14, we're getting out into junior school and secondary school. We're getting out into the world, building our social relationships. Often something happens, some challenge could be minor, could be major, but we tend to build our strategies again in response to the things that happen to us in that social environment. And then 14 to 21, we're forming our first loving relationships with other people. And often things happen in that stage of our life as well. If we look back at those early stages in our lives, a lot of us can see things that happened to us that resulted in some of these key strategies. By repetition, they become quite embedded. And I think there's a lot of truth that exists in our early experience in that way. And I love here you talk about shifting our attention towards growth. And you share the great analogy of trees and viriditas. Yeah, I I grew up in Essex and we have a lot of pubs called the Green Man. And I always thought that was interesting. And it's it's based on this ancient concept. It's a pagan thing about respecting and man and woman, the humankind being in nature and being inextricably linked to what was growing in the environment. And I think we've lost a lot of that linkage. And it's something that we see in our, not just fear, but also in our gut health or our, our problems with autoimmune diseases and such. And I'm what I'm saying is, I think the model of growth that you see in a tree or a plant is much closer to how we should look upon our own potential for growth as humans. We are all built of the same clay that made other growing structures. Trees don't just grow in one direction outwards and upwards, they grow down and grow a root. So this whole thing about understanding our our nature, our history, our fears, our dark side, it's actually all about building a stronger root because our growth goes in both directions and it is ongoing. We can continue to grow and one of the challenges I think we have particularly later in life is that we get locked into thinking we are as we, as we are. You see older people who continue to be curious and to challenge themselves and to continue to grow. And I think they stay happier and enjoying life longer because they get out, they're curious, and they grow. And I think it's a superpower if we can think of ourselves more like that. That segues so well with the idea of the crustacean and shedding the old shell. And you mentioned as well the beaver and the monkey. There's another analogy which you make, again, animals, which is the horse and the dolphin. I uncovered these two negative animals, the, the monkey and the beaver, and it occurred to me there were two positive ones as well. Firstly, the horse. It's important, I think, because it's, it's my analogy for horse and rider, how we should be with our fear. Don't just make it your friend. Make it the horse that you ride on. You know, have the sort of partnership that a horse and a rider have. And we can learn something from horses as well, I think, because horses are very emotionally focused and in the moment. You know, a horse doesn't ask how much further is it. 
the horse just focuses on you know making the next step and traveling onward on that journey they don't worry about the destination like we do i think sometimes that's something we could learn from the world of the horse the dolphin is an animal that is focused on depth and is on focused on the present moment and diving in what i see as the sort of vertical exploration of this current moment in time i think we spend far too much of our time in the horizontal if you think of two different forms of awareness the vertical going down into the moment and what does this moment hold for me compared to the vertical which is pushing backwards into our past and forwards into our future those are two completely different forms of awareness and if you think about what occupies our minds on a daily basis i think we have to ask how much of our minds do we spend worrying about the future and extrapolating about the past i want to question that because i think it's most of what we do is unhelpful we should be spending 80% of our time in the in the now you know focusing on what's in front of us and maybe look more like 20% planning a bit of the future and learning from the past you know i think we we spend higher percentages than we need to in the horizontal the past and the future and i don't think that's that's a good use of our mental energy i'm doing a talk in google a keynote in google this week and i have a slide and i have a picture of a tree and i have a picture of the leaves the trunk and then the roots and i did say sim- something very similar that we focus on the leaves and the foliage but really that's the past and the present is right in front of us the trunk right in front of us and we focus very little there and we certainly don't focus on the roots on the as you said about the tree growing future versions of ourselves we focus on the most evident piece or the thing that's most evident to everyone else and that's where we point to and we identify ourselves with but it's really not helpful for our future growth look what happens at christmas take a christmas tree we cut off the top of the tree we bring it into our living room we put tinsel and baubles on it it doesn't last it doesn't survive christmas who wants to be a christmas tree you know, it's not <laughs> it's not a very good model for living is it your social media tinsels and baubles and i look great but you know chop the tree off from the roots is that such a smart idea i love that <laughs> i'll have to add a new slide man a christmas tree <laughs> so let's look to some of the solutions you mentioned some of the workshop work you do in fear hack workshops one of the ones I loved was this concept of the lack hole. There was a point at which I identified that I was always seeking something new. Um, it was a bit like the children's question in the back of the car, are we there yet? Constantly, I'd reach something, I'd get my objective, and then I'd be on to the next thing. You know, I noticed it with a, a pair of running shoes that I felt that my running would be improved if I got myself a new pair of more waterproof running shoes. And, you know, that grew and grew and grew until I convinced myself that was true. And I bought the new pair of shoes and then went running. And I noticed that it wasn't the running shoes at all that was the problem. It was my commitment to running that I needed to address. It was something deep within me. But I'd put my whole expectation story onto the item, onto the thing. And this is what I call the lack hole. We have this strategy where we tend to sort of focus on something that we feel will make us whole and will solve the problem. 
the new car, the new shoes, the new shirt, the new computer, the reality is very rarely does it fill that hole. And it's a question of sometimes just recognizing that and realizing actually the issue is far deeper in ourselves and we ought to question that and challenge ourselves a bit harder rather than just seeking the quick fix because the lack hole will persist. It'll find something else. And I think all of us have to realize that in our own way, because I can say as much as I like about it, I hope people can recognize something of that in themselves. You know, this idea of spark joy and, you know, minimal living and all that kind of stuff, that appeals to me because that means letting go of things like the lack of, so you're not buying things to fill a void. You're actually at peace with yourself. You're happy in the moment. You're happy with what you have. You're happy with regeneration rather than looking to the old or as you say the christmas tree effect focusing on the shiny thing that you can tell people about you don't actually care anymore it's an amazing place to get to and i really feel that this book can help people get there one last exercise i'd love to share and it seems like one that you do regularly in the fear hack workshops it's this idea of the fear dig let's share that one as something people might do at home the idea of the fear dig is to identify your fear and then try and dig beneath it. What's really driving that fear? So ask yourself, you know, if I have a fear of going outside, of leaving the house, what would happen? I often use the, the five whys. Why are you concerned about going outside the house. Well, I'm concerned about going outside the house because I might meet people. Okay, so why are you concerned about meeting people? Well, I'm concerned about meeting people because when I meet people, something might happen. So you you dig down by taking the answer and asking, why is that so? And what I've found is if, if you dig away at people's fears, you will often realize that the thing people thought was a fear is in fact a strategy to avoid fear, not a fear itself. So in this particular example, I had somebody once whose fear was going outside the house, so they thought. And we dug down into it and realized that, no, the fear was actually the ability to deal with uncertainty when they were out in the world and meeting people. So the actual fear was just the inability to embrace uncertainty in conversations. And the point is that if you can get down and understand what your actual fear really is, and you can talk to it, firstly, the fear, there's a weird thing that fear thrives in the generality. As soon as you start to be specific and start to talk to it, it tends to get smaller and you tend to get more powerful. There's, you can literally put bones on the, the ghost of fear. And you can deal much more easily with something if you know that it's the uncertainty of the conversations than if it's this vague strategy that you're struggling with. So what you can do is reframe your strategy and your approach and your actions, and you can to make small experiments about how you might get better at that thing. You can also start to see where your fear might have come from. Awareness is a key part of this. If you can see why it is that you ended up doing that and believing that thing and making an assumption that you wouldn't be able to cope in the moment, it's much more easily to grow through it. So that's kind of the nub of the fear dig, which is one of the exercises we do on the workshop. 
Brilliant, Hilary. And where can people find out more about you and the Fear Hack workshops, etc.? I'm just at hillarygallo.com, at hillarygallo on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm very happy to support people who want to have more of the conversation. Author of Fear Hack, How What Scares Us Makes Us. Hilary Gallo, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. <laughs>